I just felt, and this is going to sound very pompous of me, but it was my moral obligation, who was in a position of privilege and had this happening on your doorstep that I should go and volunteer and do something. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. My guest today is a gorgeous young lady who I actually met because of my daughter. My daughter was helping out this summer in Athens in this very special project called Saffron Kitchen. And um, I went to visit her and I met Evelina. She is the founder of, Saf of the Saffron Kitchen Project and I was very fascinated by that. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys, Evelina. Hi, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I would like to start this podcast episode by asking you, did my daughter behave well while she was talking? <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's going to hear this. I have to say of yes. Of course she is. We're going to make her hear it. <laughs> no, I'm joking. She was, she was absolutely wonderful. She was like a member of the team from day one. Um, I think the guys really enjoyed having her in the kitchen. Uh, she was fantastic to bounce ideas off recipes and things like that. So it was Truly, I'm not just saying this because you're her mother. It was a pleasure having her. Um, yeah, it was. It wasn't like she was a volunteer. It was like she was a firm, like team member of the team. You know, beautiful. That's what a mother likes to hear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this, this brings us right into uh, you know talking about what is this project? Why did you start it? How did you start it? I know that you are helping the vulnerable, which includes. Uh, obviously uh, refugees but also it's not just refugees it's also includes no exactly we say vulnerable communities because it basically means anybody in need so it can be refugees it can be homeless it can be migrants asylum seekers um local communities in need it basically it puts a it's like a label not but not a label you know so it, it spans across basically whoever needs our support When did you start and how did you, why did you start it? Okay, well, <laughs> goes a bit back, but um, in, a, in a past life of mine, uh, I was a chef and I worked in food and I transitioned into humanitarian aid in about 2016. And I was working for um, an organization working in community centers and, in, and education. And after many, many happy years there, I decided to leave and start my own project and I wanted to incorporate something that I knew quite well, which is food uh, and cooking for others. And so in about 2021, I started mapping Athens to see if there was a need for such a project. And in 2022, we opened and basically what Saffron Kitchen Project does is completely, completely revolve around food. Through food, we do three main things, aid, opportunity and employment. In aid, we uh, we cook and provide meals to vulnerable communities in Athens. So like we just said, that could be anyone. We do that in partnership with other organizations on the ground. Could be somebody helping the homeless, a women's shelter, a refugee center. And we basically try to cook food that you wouldn't normally expect in prepackaged food for these kind of communities. You know, that we're changing the stereotype of a soup kitchen. <laughs> The recipes are mostly mine or the head chef, who is Syrian. I'm Italian. It's this great mix of Mediterranean, Middle Eastern colors and flavors and memories and love and everything you'd want <laughs> in a dish. 
And at the moment, we are cooking roughly 6,500 meals a month. And the numbers keep on going up and up. So that's the aid side. The employment side is that everyone in the kitchen, all the staff is hired directly from the refugee community. We hire them on Greek contracts that include all the necessary benefits, you know, Christmas, Easter bonuses, those kind of things, health insurance, to sort of help people within that community get real legal jobs as opposed to the black jobs that unfortunately they often fall into where they get exploited and things like that. And then the third thing we do is opportunity is we provide culinary training. And we do this through a Greek school, which is like a lifelong learning center connected to the Ministry of Education here in Greece. And anyone who does the course with us and completes it receives an accredited certificate, which at the moment, as far as I know of today, November 2023, we are the only organization in Athens that offers accredited culinary training certificates. And it's been wildly popular. We've had 75 students do the course, uh, over 250 applicants, and that's in a year and a half of us running. So that's in a small nutshell <laughs> what we do at Saffron Kitchen I have Project. many questions now. I made a few notes. <laughs> Go, fire <laughs> very, away. Very interesting. One thing that I've noticed when I was there is that you do cook all these meals, but you people don't come and eat where you are. You you deliver them to play. You supply them to to different places, don't you? Yeah, we. We work in a center with other organizations. So basically anyone who is in the center and staff of volunteers can eat in the center. We now have takeaway portions where individuals can come and pick them up in the afternoons. Otherwise, from one o'clock, one of our many partners comes and collects the food and then they distribute it out in their own centers or whatever distribution outlet they're, they're working with. So it's quite fun. At one o'clock, you get this buzz of people coming in and taking their, their little containers back with them. And we do everything in like, as in to a individual organization, we'll do anything between 130 portions to 10. So it really sort of changes and it's, it's flexible depending on people's needs. Wonderful. And the other question that I came up, those 75 people who have trained with you, do they train for free or do they have to pay a fee if they come and train? No, no, they train for free. We cover the costs for them. It's a short training. It's about 60 hours. And once they finish that, we also put them through an employability uh, workshop where we teach them about, you know, what it means to be hired in Greece, what your rights are, what a contract looks like, the, the paperwork you need for it, you know, if you have your tax number or your health insurance, whatever else. Um, and then once we do that, we write their CVs or rewrite them if they already have them. And for those who want, we try to connect them to work. So we find jobs in the hospitality industry, restaurants, hotels, whatever. Amazing. Because one thing that I, I always think about when I see refugees, when I see people complaining about refugees, when refugees have nothing to do, they are obviously bored. And when you are bored, you come up with all sorts of ideas that may not be so good. So what you are doing is actually keeping these people busy. And I think the solution to many of these refugees' problems would be allowing them to work. Well, yeah, absolutely. Everybody should have the right to work. I think beyond boredom, the thing that can really uh, affect these communities who have to wait such a long time for their paperwork, for a decision, is their mental health. 
depending on who who you're talking about, but you know, it might be the head of a house who needs to look after their family, needs to provide for their family. And maybe in their home country, they did that. And if you lose your role in society, mm. you know, and you can be middle-aged, you've gone to school, you haven't gone to school, but you've worked and you have a whole life behind you. And suddenly you're basically in a waiting room, unable, completely out of, uh, and everything out of your control. We see a lot of issues with mental health. And so I think what's interesting about our project is that at the beginning and at the end, you know, through the aid, we're giving you a meal so you don't have to worry about filling your stomach, you know, every day. You have something else to think about, finding work, getting your paperwork. You don't have to worry about if you're going to eat that day. And then at the other end of the spectrum of the project, we're also going to try and help you find work. And, and build a skill or, you know, develop one or start a new hobby, whatever it is. It's, you know, we kind of can help people at all different stages of, of I guess, the refugee asylum journey. Fantastic. Fantastic. And, you know, you, you really, really touched a point here with, you know, talking about who these people are, you know, that that this, this is a the head of a family, a, a man who who provided all these years and, and suddenly it, he can't because he is not where he is supposed to be and he's lost everything. And mental health is a big health is a big stigma that we generally don't like to talk about, even in the Western world. You know, people would yeah. rather say that they have a heart problem than they have a mental health <laughs> problem. It's true. Absolutely. It's true. Absolutely. I actually I actually have an example to tell you, and uh, it's crazy. It really, really made me sad that somebody said, you know, I can't travel because I'm really, really afraid of flying, but I'm telling my clients that I have a heart problem. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, it's stigmatized everything to do with mental health because we take a step back and we say, oh my God, I don't want to have anything to do with this person because she or he is crazy. Crazy or you're different. Different is suddenly sometimes uh, something to be scared of, you know, maybe... Um, because I can't do that, like you, they'll think I'm weird or, you know, because I haven't traveled the world and I'm different to my friends and therefore, you know, I can't fit into conversations. Obviously, these are very <laughs> random examples, but yeah, absolutely. And I, like you, what you touched on the fact that um, these the people we sort of work with do come from cultures where generally it's often less spoken about and you think therapy that means I have to have some crazy obvious trauma and maybe you and I would look at someone and say hey you've traveled all these miles from your country based on x y or z that is a trauma and they don't see that in that moment you know (laughs) so totally and I think fear we mentioned fear before because I think racism and not understanding other people has a lot to do with fear about not knowing what these people are like. It's just what we what has been indoctrinated into us through whatever the media. Of course, the media always make sure that we all hate each other a little bit yeah. more every day. And um, don't you it's think such a good job at that? <laughs> they do. And don't you think it would help? If kids at school, oh, I'm sure it's happening more and more because, uh, you know, school classes are getting mixed up. But if we actually taught children about other culture more than we do. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine know, school was so long ago for me now. Maybe, maybe it's been so long, maybe they've changed it. But absolutely. I, but you know, what's what's funny is that at the end of the day, a child doesn't isn't born scared of somebody else. No, or, no. Or it's what's the environment around them 
and if the narrative changes. And I think that's something that the refugee community has a lot. There's such a stigma around them, fueled by multiple things. But yeah, if we were just more open and and willing to teach early on. And I think, and I truly, truly believe that these governments that say, oh, uh, we're going to get political here, sorry, but, you know, that say we've got to build a higher wall, block more access, you know, ship them off here or there, or whatever these governments are saying, they need, they're in for a wake-up call because we're not in a refugee crisis of 2016. We are in a new wave of how the world is going to be, be it climate, be it war, be it money, there is going to be a constant stream of people on the move around the world. You see it in South America going up central, going up to north. You see it from you know the east to the west, and it will continue to be like this. There's no stopping it. And we just need to learn to, this is going to sound cheesy, just open the borders, be welcome everyone, live in harmony together, um, and stop creating and fueling hate. That would be so beautiful. And I, you know, we should really, really hope for that every day. And yeah. you you see, I'm a hypnotherapist and I know that, that we are only born oh. with, we're only born with two fears. One is fear of falling and the other one is fear of loud noises. And none of them have anything to do with racism. No child is born a racist. We are all born, born with those fears? Oh, yes. There's no other wow. fear. Wow. Okay. Those, those are, so everything else is conditioned. We heard it somewhere. Somebody told us, you know, that black child or that whatever Asian child, whatever the stories that children hear around. And the problem is that very often parents don't even realize what they are saying. You know, they don't. So go ahead. No, I was going to say parents, schools, teachers, TV, whatever it is. That's fascinating about those being our, our original fears. Yes. <laughs> yes. So how about uh, we're, 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 we've become a little bit sad now. Let's not be sad. We want to talk. <laughs> no, we're not <laughs> sad. We're happy. I'm it smiling. is what it is. You see, I always believe that. I, I personally say I cannot change the world, but I can change my world. I can change, I can affect the world that affects me, that I am surrounded by. And I think what you're doing, you are changing your world. You're changing the world around you. And this Suffering Kitchen project is absolutely fantastic. Can pe- How can people support you? Well, f- yeah, firstly, thank you for saying that. That's a beautiful way of looking at it. Um, and I'm going to take that with me because there are some days where you go, what are we doing? And there's, it's not doing anything, but that's obviously not uh, the case. If you'd like to support SKB, um, there's multiple ways. Obviously, you can come and volunteer with us, like your daughter. Um, you can volunteer in the kitchen, in the admin. Um, you can run a marathon and get people to sponsor you and give us the money, or you can very simple, old fashioned way, give a donation. You can do that through our website. We have an online shop, so you can buy some beautiful goodies, uh, wonderful Christmas presents coming up soon. I'm plugging it now. <laughs> yes, I was going to ask about, I've made the note, but we're already yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we've got um, a fundraiser coming up on the 28th of November, um, and we're going to be launching, we already have a merchandise shop, but we're launching some new products for the Christmas period. Some really beautiful things, mostly made here in Greece, locally sourced. And yeah, I feel, yeah, it's it's 
It's always money makes the world go round, right? Of course it does. <laughs> and you see, to be honest, I would much rather give you some money than run a marathon. If that's <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> but, no. but now, you know, sometimes it's nice to give people alternative ways of fundraising. Of course, of course. You know, have a bake sale, give us the, the money raised, you know? I'll do a 10K. I can do a 10K, but not a marathon. <laughs> I'm sure you can. So listen, let's so, so let's talk a little bit about Evelina. Why are you in Greece? Because you were born in Italy. You say you have a British accent. Yeah. Um, what's what happened? What happened? <laughs> so I, as you said, I am born, uh, I was born in, in Italy, in Milan, in the great city of Milan. And my parents moved to London when I was five. So obviously I, I went with, and um, it wasn't so simple as parents moving to London for work, which it is, but there's a, a slightly more interesting story, which I will share with you. My mother is Italian through and through as, as Northern Italian probably as could be. And my father, born in Italy, but comes from Sephardi Jewish parents who, if you know anything about Sephardis originally... I don't. I don't. Please tell me more. Oh, okay. So um, Judaism is split into two. You have Ashkenazis and Sephardis. And the Ashkenazis tend to come from Eastern Europe. And the Sephardis are more Mediterranean. Ah, so I knew all... about Ashkenazis, but I didn't know the other... Tell me again, what is it called? Safadis. Safadis, okay. Ashkenazis speak Yiddish, Safadis speak Ladino. And we originate from Spain, from Northern Africa, from basically anywhere around that area. And my father did a, um, you know, that ancestry mm-hmm. test recently. Mm-hmm. I mean, his is fascinating. My mother was hilarious. Hers is like 95% Italian and 5% <laughs> German. <laughs> and my dad was... European, of course, like through Italy and Spain and stuff. And then he was North African. He was a little bit Bedouin. He was Middle Eastern, Turkish. I mean, there's a whole range. So my father's family or his parents were born in Turkey um, and then they left Turkey for Italy. And then during the Second World War, during the Holocaust, my grandparents actually went to England and my grandfather was in secret service there during the war. And he was stationed in various places. And the reason they could get to England is because, and this is how the story goes, generations back, (laughs) my great, 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 great grandfather or whoever, um, did a favor for Queen Victoria. Oh, my God. And as a thank you, we received 10 generations of British citizenship. And that is how my, my grandfather, my father myself and my brother all have British citizenship. And so there was always this link to England. My grandfather and grandmother, uh, I think probably felt from a little bit all over the world, but there was this British side. I mean, they called their children Peggy and John. So <laughs> quite English there. And so my even my father during school, I think he went to English uh, boarding school for a year which I think he hated coming from Italy at the time. Um, And then it just, with his work, he always went there and then ended up sort of having an office there and in Italy and then ultimately made the decision to move there. Amazing. Uh, I used to call myself an Italian Londoner. (laughs) Thank God for Queen Victoria. 
<laughs> and whatever that favor was <laughs> it's funny though if you speak to different members of the family they tell the story differently but um what's truly funny is that no one alive knows there's no one alive that actually knows exactly how it went so uh, yeah so you could make up a story and make it <laughs> I can say whatever I want right now <laughs> exactly it's very true so how did you end up in Greece so, as I briefly mentioned earlier, I was um, in the culinary industry. I dropped out of university, went to culinary school, worked in restaurants. and What did uh, you study? What did you drop out of? Philosophy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, university, that one year of university was one of the best years of my life, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> I'm more of a doer, more of a practical person. Yes, and, yes. Um, I'd always wanted to cook. And uh, just so happened, my grandmother fell ill that summer. And the only way I could get her to eat was if I made the food myself. And it kind of snowballed into me applying for culinary school instead, working in the field. And I uh, really enjoyed working in food until, yes. And then I, sorry, I was saying I started my own catering company. And then when the Syrian refugees started coming into Greece, I just felt and this is going to sound very pompous of me, but it was my moral obligation who was in a position of privilege and had this happening on your doorstep that I should go and volunteer and do something. And a friend of a friend's mother had started this small NGO helping on one of the islands um, on Leros. And so I signed up for two weeks to go do my my volunteering experience duty. I don't know what you want to call it. And it, I just ended up happening to go at a very strange time it was just after March 20th which is when the borders were shut and everything sort of changed and this organization I was working with called Echo 100 plus um, was still on the island but they moved to the mainland and I was one of the first volunteers from their team to go into this camp and when the two weeks were up I just looked at my mother who came with me it was the two of us and I was like, mom, I've, I've got to do this again. I've got to help more. I've got to be more involved. And to be fully honest, I was helping run something out of a, a warehouse. We were giving food and clothes and things like that. And I think it was my years in um, working in a kitchen, my organizational <laughs> skills just translated really well in a warehouse in a refugee camp. It just felt like I was doing something much better with those skills. Um, and I just kept going back and back and back. And ultimately, at one point, I said it's one or the other. And I closed down my company and I fully committed to being in Greece um, and said, great, I guess I'm I'm changing career paths. I got an internship at, a, at the Reuters Foundation in London. So unfortunately, moved back to London for, for nearly a year. Uh, I say unfortunately, just because as you can imagine, living in Greece is better than a winter in London. Definitely. Um, yeah. And then I, I I wanted to do a different experience because I thought if I'm moving into this field, then I shouldn't, I should do different jobs. You know, I can't just work for the same organization. I need to understand context and the different jobs that there are within this field. And yeah, um, the rest is history. After, the after, the, history after London, I just said, I've got to come back to Greece mm -hmm. and Every year I say it's going to be a year and I've just done about five years here. Uh, Greece needs you. You don't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, don't say that. But yeah, so from coming in 2016 for two weeks, I can't do the math that quickly right now. Well, well, it's seven, 20, years 20, later, seven years. 
<laughs> here, here I am still, still amazing in- amazing so your your chef is who I met who is a very Syrian you are Italian yes. born in yep. England um you're in Greece what is the best food what what food do you like most? <laughs> of those three countries it's all of it all of it generally <laughs> I'm never going to not stay true to myself. It's 100% Italian. But I will say that Middle Eastern food is also deeply rooted in my heart. I think maybe it comes from the Turkish food my grandmother also used to make for me. I had uh, My mother is a fantastic cook. My grandmothers are fantastic cooks. So I've got that kind of fall back on so I don't know you know some people might say oh it's not but it's obvious that it's Italian but truly we have incredible produce but yeah I think my style is more Middle East no Mediterranean so I say Mediterranean in that it has a lot of Middle Eastern influence and then just to throw one in at the end I'd say Japanese <laughs> just to shock to, to, just to, to shock to the system things up a little bit you <laughs> it, know it's different it's much cleaner it's 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 more and so it's, it's also light. art form Japanese food. It's lighter than Italian. Well, Italian's not too bad. If it you depends. stick to the healthy oil stuff. Yeah, oil- that's true too. But you see the thing about I have exactly the same feeling about Middle Eastern food. And I think it's not just the food. You see, I live down here in Cyprus. I'm I'm even more um I'm closer to the Middle East than you are. And and I'm Swiss, okay. I'm neutral. And but and I look, I've been looking at I've been here for many years and I've worked mm-hmm. in Greece and I look at this. I look at the politics and I look at Whatever the Cyprus problem, which is you know the Turkey occupying yeah. us, yeah, and and I know one thing: if there was no, I don't know what I want to call it, politics, no religion, no, these are all the same people. They have the same wish. They have the same beautiful sense of hospitality. They have the same sense of wanting to cook for people and look after people and running after children with food. And they have the same hair. Literally, if you hadn't said it, I would have. Don't you agree with me? A, a thousand percent. My dad will come home. Will come home. Will come to Greece, and he'll be eating something. And be like my my grandmother. My grandmother. My mother used to make this for me. So the Turkish and the Greek side, and you're like, yeah, because it's the same thing. They, we're so so similar. There are so many similarities, and like you said, it's it's what we said at the beginning as well. You know that fear that has put in, you know, brainwashed society is what's yeah. caused it. So that. You can't look at your neighbor and realize you're exactly the same. And and food is such a beautiful way to learn from each other and and to understand our similarities or say, hey, that's strange. We have that ingredient, but we use it like that. You use it like that. Let me learn from that. Let me develop. I don't know. It's such a, such a beautiful way to be able to get to know a, a community, a society of people that it's a shame if people also start to get aggressive with it, you know. No, it's Cypriot. No, it's Greek. No, it's Turkish. No, it's, you know. It's all the same. It's all the same. <laughs> yes. So what, what makes the Can world... I also just mention very quickly. Please. That that I felt like you slightly put down your Swiss side. And I am a very, very big fan of Swiss food. <laughs> you know what? When people when people ask me what what is Swiss food, I very often don't know what to say. And then I think about it and a million things come to my mind. But... Well, I, uh, I've spent a lot of time in Switzerland. My parents spend most of the year in Switzerland. Uh, yeah, I, like I said, we're, we're a mixed bunch. Spend a lot of the year in Switzerland. And, and 
I could sit here and talk to you about Swiss food for the next half hour if you want. <laughs> What's your favorite Swiss dish? Do you you have one? Yes, it's uh, I'm gonna completely. Um, I can say it's mitzutino uh, azurigese, the geschnitzeteller. Is that mm. what it is? Yeah. With roshti. Yeah. The veal and the mushroom sauce. Yes, yeah, I like. I, I. I. Yeah. Yes. One forget. I'm sorry if I butchered the the way That's you okay. say it. That's okay. <laughs> That's totally fine. We're already coming to the end, but I want to ask. Um, do you did you tra- or do you travel? Do you like to travel? Because it's most memorable journey. So maybe there is a little bit of. Two, three minutes. I grew up with my parents working in India my whole childhood. So every year they'd go to India and America for work. So I always saw traveling as like just a normal thing. I didn't realize it was weird that my parents did it so much. Um, And they took me to India for the first time when I was eight. And, you know, I absolutely love traveling, which sounds so banal because most people do. Um, Memorable trip. Is I actually just came back from Namibia yesterday, but and that was insane. But I would say Jordan last Ooh, year. I love Jordan. I I sometimes I feel like I'm just trying to find somebody to bring up the conversation so I can talk about my trip to Jordan. So thank you for doing that. Uh, absolutely wonderful country. I traveled it with a girlfriend. We drove. We got a car. Drove up and down. Um, we joke that we completed Petra because we think we covered every corner. The nicest people. Everyone kept saying, oh, two girls going by themselves. No problem. Absolutely no, I have more problem walking down the street here than I did for 10 days over there. And the food was insane. The landscape, the shopping, <laughs> culture, everything. Absolutely I'd say probably one of the best trips of my entire life. I agree. I And you know what? It's only a 45 minutes flight from Cyprus. And I only oh, went really? there for the first time four years ago. I don't understand why I never went to Jordan before. I love everything about Jordan. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Wadi, uh, Wadi Ram, the desert. Uh, oh my God. We spent, and we spent the night in Wadi Ram and watched the stars and, and wake up and watch the sunrise and yeah. everything, yeah. everything. Yeah. And Dead Sea lying on the day, you know. And, 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 and for me, the desert was one of those moments in life where you just kind of take a moment and you go like, this is pretty special. I know yeah. I'm living one of the special moments of my life. And we spent two nights there. So it was perfect because we kind of got to do a bit of everything. But the second night we were sitting outside the campsite and I looked up and I said, man, that's a, that's a lot of stars. I'd quite like to sleep outside. And obviously we were in like some tent thing. The guy running the camp was like, oh, I can put a mattress outside for you if you want. And I said, yes, please. Because, you know, what, what's what, what's going to get me out in the desert? There's no one there. So um, I fell asleep on this mattress outside of my tent, looking up at the stars. And then I woke up, I don't know, it must be in the middle of the night. And it was like I was in the middle of a galaxy. And I was falling back asleep and I just kept saying, Evelina, take it in. Wait, wait, don't fall asleep yet. Don't (laughs) mental picture it. (laughs) Fantastic. Those are moments in life, aren't they? And I think maybe those are the moments in life that keep you going, doing what you're doing, because, you know, you were saying before, sometimes you get to the point where you, where it's hard, where you're wondering, why am I doing all this? I'm sure it's not always easy what you're doing and there are complications, but that's when you need those little moments in the desert that, you know, bring back that life is worth living. And I think I always say it sounds very cliche, but I think we're just all here to walk each other home. That's lovely. 
I always just say, if you're kind to one person, you might not have changed the world, but you changed that person's life in that moment. And yes. maybe there'll be a ripple effect that they'll be kind to somebody else. That's what I hold on to when I can't look at the world and I say, how can I change what's happening? And how can there be so much hate? Mm-hmm. And I think, okay. And I think of one of the times when I um, was in Jordan again, sorry to go back, but I was... Uh, we were in the desert again and I went into this little shop. I mean, they were selling like a bowl and there's tea and the, and this little kid came and showed me his coloring book. And I managed to have in very broken Arabic a conversation with this like three, four year old boy that I had learned from first day in camp and learning from people who invited me in to eat with them and slowly slowly built up seven years later into being able to have like a conversation with this kid and it was one of the proudest moments of my life (laughs) one of my dreams I I I think I'll have to wait until my next life because uh, I don't know it's just difficult but I would love to speak Arabic I've always wanted to learn Arabic you know I never too late no, no, I know. I, I know, but I'm also lazy. So what I love about my podcast is learning and hearing from people. And I have learned in this, I don't know, 40 minutes that we've spent a lot from you. We are coming to the end. Any last words? Oh my God, no pressure. <laughs> May make them count. Oh God, I don't know what to say. This is um, your moment, Evelina. Uh, peace in the Middle East. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, that seems crazy right now, but it just feels like we're living in a topsy-turvy world. So hopefully we can learn from each other, from our neighbors, be kind. And like we've said throughout this whole time is work in harmony as at the end of the day, life is just a bit better when you're a bit nicer. Yes. And cook for each other. Cook for each other. That's better. That's a better last word than what I said. Yeah. Cook from each other. It's it's a way of being kind. It's a way of, I say this, SKP for us, cooking is cooking with love and respect. And I think you're opening somebody up, you know, somebody who's eaten our food may never have met me and the chefs and, and the team, but um, I hope they feel the joy that we put into our food when they eat it. Wow. Somebody really made this caring about who was going to eat it. So, yeah. That's the power very- of your food. <laughs> thank you so much for being on most memorable journeys today thank you if you enjoy my podcast please like share and subscribe to my channel you will find all the information in the show notes <laughs>